0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie and this is episode 316, Athelred, the Old Guard. This show is ad-free due to member support and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Gunner, Lester, and Victoria for signing up already. Before we get back to our story, I've been seeing your conversations online, and it made me realize that I need to clarify something. Some of you have taken the discussion of Athelred's unflattering nickname, and how he caught hell for some things that were actually kind of out of his control and part of the common culture, and took that to mean that the BHP is arguing that Athelred was a good king. He wasn't. He was an awful king in many respects. But what I'm trying to convey here... And what I'm hoping you'll get out of this series is that the story of Athelred and how bad his reign was, was a great deal more complicated and nuanced than the stories regarding his reign imply. The truth is that leaders tend to get all the credit for all kinds of things that they only marginally are involved in. And this is especially the case if those things are bad. And that's not just a medieval history problem. We do it constantly, even with our own leaders. For example, if you turn on the news on just about any given day, you'll see perfectly styled adults openly wondering how the decrease in national housing prices was impacted by a speech that some wrinkled Kentucky senator gave last month. And the U.S. is particularly good at producing this type of news story. But the reality is that the economy is a massive, complex system that can be nudged by politics, especially if people start pushing policies that nobody's vetted or has even heard of. But the economy is not actually under their direct control. It's far too big for that. There are too many players involved, and even experts have a hard time tracking down the cause and effect of a lot of the things that happen. And yet, if you listen to pundits, you'd start to think that the Dow Jones rises and falls on the back of the American presidency, and vice versa. And you see these otherwise serious, well-groomed, and presumably well-educated adults coming forward every year, seriously looking into the camera, and honestly asking if the number of TVs bought in Ohio the day after Thanksgiving are the vindication of the president's foreign policy. And this yearly ritual makes exactly as much sense as when the medieval scribes are blaming the arrival of the Vikings on the king's piety, or lack thereof. The world is large, and it's complicated, and no simple narrative will capture the truth of how it all works. And that's just as true for the medieval era as it is for us today. So when I complicate the narrative of Athelred, it isn't because he was a good king. He wasn't. He was an objectively terrible ruler, and during his reign, England was weakened and left open to all manner of enemies. But he didn't do it alone. It takes a village to fuck up a nation. And today, we're going to get introduced to some of the people in that village. In the first few years of the Age of Athelred, England was sat atop a steaming pile of Viking mess. The Scandinavian pirates, who had been released from the firm control of Harold Bluetooth, were starting to look west. And Duke Richard of Normandy, who owed a great deal to his Scandinavian allies, was providing them with friendly ports and nearby waters. It was a complete disaster for England. And sitting on the throne at this point was Athelred, a child who came to power under dubious circumstances and who now found himself amidst a court heavily populated by people who had supported his brother during the last succession crisis. Young Athelred's witan was packed with powerful nobles who held their positions independent of him or his power as king. They had been appointed long before he came to the throne, and their families were deeply entrenched in their respective domains for generations. Truthfully, Athelred was such a weak king that it's reasonable for us to wonder if the actions of his early reign were actually his at all. Much of the activity that happens during these early years has Regency Council written all over it, starting pretty much immediately. And it all begins in the Welsh kingdom of Gwynedd. Gwynedd, the kingdom that had brought us King Capwaflin, King Rodri Mawr, and King Adderod ap Rodri, was not living up to its former glory days. And if you're wondering why I'm rolling my R's here, it's because TV presenter Gareth Jones made fun of me for how I was pronouncing Rodri Mawr. Anyway, so at this point, Gwynedd had hit a bit of a rough patch. They had been annexed by King Hualtha of Dehybarth, And sometime later, after Hulthav died, the grandsons of Anirad led a rebellion and Gwyneth regained its independence with the two royal brothers, Idwal and Iago, going on to rule over the kingdom jointly. But eventually, they became embroiled in a bitter power struggle that resulted in Iago capturing and imprisoning Idwal in 969. And if you're wondering... Yes, this is the same King Iago of Gwyneth, who later met with King Edgar of England. But while he was allegedly rowing King Edgar down the River Dee, his nephew, Huwle's son of Idwal, was plotting against him. To be honest, he'd probably been plotting ever since his father had been chucked in prison. And so in 974, Huwle led an army and drove his uncle Iago from Gwyneth, at least for a time. But Iago soon returned with a force of his own. And rather than continuing to fight it out, they agreed to share the throne of Gwyneth. And that worked for a couple of years. But what is power if you have to share it? This solution was clearly only ever going to be temporary. And into this powder keg entered Elderman Alfhera of Mercia. His lands were right on the border of Gwyneth. And critically, Alf Hera was one of the most powerful members of the Witan. He was in the king's inner circle. And based on the witness lists, he held significant amounts of power at court. And upon Athelred's succession to the throne, he almost certainly became one of the most powerful figures on the Regency Council. So he was already in a really good position politically. But as we all know by now, real power comes from land and wealth so sitting on Athelred's regency council wouldn't be enough. Don't forget that we're still in the era where a king, or an elderman who had control of a king, was expected to be a giver of rings. And fighting a war in Wales would enable Elf Hera to acquire a great deal of plunder, which he then could give out to his allies and kinsmen. And a war like that would also increase his fame, which couldn't hurt either. And with the child king Athelred on the throne... Really, who's going to tell him no? So sure enough, we're told that in the campaigning season of 978, so shortly after Edward was killed and Athelred was installed, the forces of King Huel of Gwynedd launched an attack against King Iago, and they were supported by English soldiers. Now, they failed at ousting Iago, but they did manage to raid a monastery in Wales. And for those of you really keeping track out there... This had Hera written all over it. He had a history of raiding monasteries. When Bert Firth was complaining about the madness, what he was talking about was a bunch of monasteries that were being raided in the Midlands. Well, the man that was leading that army that was causing all the madness and was raiding all those monasteries was Hera. Really, raiding monasteries was kind of his gig. And so while the Welsh Civil War had failed, At least there was an opportunity to cash in. And then in the following year of 979, at another battle, King Hul did manage to defeat his uncle and seize the kingdom for himself. Following that battle, Iago was soon captured by a band of Vikings, never to be seen again. And it's suspected by some scholars that those Vikings were actually on Hul's payroll. The whole thing was a bit shady, and it actually gets worse. Remember Hul's father? The one who'd been imprisoned? Well, apparently this wasn't a war to free him because dad stayed right where he was while King Hul plotted his next move. So that's what's going on in Gwynedd during the first couple years during the reign of King Athelred. But the reason why I brought it up, other than the fact that it's got more inter-family drama than a soap opera, is because it doesn't actually make sense for an English elderman to get himself involved in a Welsh civil war. Alf Hera wasn't an independent ruler. He was an elderman. And yet here he was, apparently operating relatively unconstrained. That doesn't exactly give the impression that he was subject to a powerful monarch. It looks like Alf Hera might have realized that he was powerful enough to do pretty much whatever he wanted. And then you have the events of the following year, of 980. That's when the first Viking raiders returned to England and lay waste to Thanet, Cheshire, and Southampton. In response, the crown marshaled Elderman Alfhera of Mercia, and it ordered him to undertake the prestigious task of giving Edward a proper Christian burial. And while that very well might have helped soothe the hurt feelings over Athelred's ascension, and it seems to have enabled him to finally undergo a coronation, doing this was also very much in Alfhera's interests. See, Elderman Alfhera had actually opposed Edward's ascension in the first place, and now, following that whole stabby-stabby thing, that wasn't looking too good. So going and rebearing Edward, or in this case, rebearing Unfirth and pretending he was Edward, was really good PR for the Eldermen of Mercia. It makes sense. But then again, it's an odd priority to take when you have cities that are getting raided. And don't even get me started on what Bishop Athelwold was doing with his gala at Old Minster. Because that too happened in 980. And Athelwald, who in charters appears to have been Athelred's chief counselor, was openly acting as a de facto ruler by taking the submissions of the upper classes at the traditional site of royal power at Old Minster. Athelwold might have been just a bishop, but he was acting like a king. And he was promoting his own interests, just like his colleague Elf Hera. And as for those Viking attacks... Well, we're told that, quote, most of the population was slain or imprisoned, end quote. And apparently at that point, the power surrounding the crown was too busy throwing funerals and galas to respond. And because there ain't no party like a Viking party because a Viking party don't stop, in 981, St. Petrock's Monastery was sacked. And then the raiders struck all up and down the coast of Devonshire and Cornwall and Wales. Then, in the following year of 982, three ships arrived off the coast of Dorset and struck Portland. Then they went and burned London. And yeah, you heard that right. London was burned. Things here were getting really out of control, and you might be wondering what the Crown and the Regency Council were doing about all of this. Me too. And here's what I can glean from the records and the charters and the other supporting documents that survive to us today. While the Viking crews were plundering cities and enslaving the English and attacking the other Portland, not my Portland, and even burning the city of London, the Regency Council was focused heavily on promoting the cult of Edward the Martyr. Yeah, the only discernible response that I can find to all of this ravaging and enslaving appears to have been essentially thoughts and prayers. Yikes. But if you look at it from the perspective of Alf Hera and Athelwald, it's not all that surprising that they weren't scrambling to act. Elderman Alf Hera's lands were inland. Most of them were insulated from the threat of these Viking raiders. Only a really large army like Halfdans or the Appledore Danes could ever really pose much of a threat to his estates. Alf Hera's main threat came from the Welsh, which he had been dealing with by helping his allies seize control over Gwyneth. As for Athelwald, well, the Benedictine reforms were continuing apace. And even his enemies were submitting to him, which opened the way to a further consolidation of power for him and his Benedictine allies. And the fact is, the Viking attacks that were happening weren't slowing that process down. If anything, it gave people a pretty good reason to want to seek God's favor. And a bishop was exactly who you want to go to if you wanted God's favor and Athelwald was a bishop. So, while Dorset, Southampton, and other southern settlements were at risk of the Vikings, for the most powerful figures of the Witan during Child King Athelred's early reign, well, those raids sounded like someone else's problem. They were doing great. But on that same year that London was burned, the powerful elderman Athelmar of Hampshire died. Now, Athelmar was the son of Elderman Athelweird, the chronicler, and that meant that, like his father, Athelmar was on the royal line. And given his placement on the witness lists, he was actually quite a powerful figure. But now he was gone. And he had children, children who were also on that same important bloodline. And the eldest of those sons expected to inherit Athelmar's lands and titles. In fact, tradition said that this is exactly what should happen next. So did politics. Athelmar's father, Elderman Athelweird, was still alive. and He was likely one of the other powerful figures in the Witan. And I imagine that he would have wanted his grandson to inherit. So everything here was lining up for a pretty standard succession of the Eldermancy. And then the king did nothing. The Eldermancy of Hampshire didn't go anywhere. On that same year, we're told that Elderman Edwin of Sussex, who might have been ruling over Western Kent, also died. And as for what happened to his lands and titles? Again, nothing. For about the last four years, the record gives every indication that the powerful figures of the English court were riding roughshod over law and land and doing generally as they pleased. But during those same four years... Athelred had been growing up. He was now probably about 14 years old, nearly a man by Anglo-Saxon standards. And suddenly, we see powerful eldermen not getting what they wanted. They're not even getting what would be considered a basic right by law and custom. Cracks may have been forming in the power block of court. But cracks don't mean that the whole thing was about to implode. Don't assume that this meant that the power of the Regency Council had been broken. It hadn't. In fact, on the following year of 983, Elderman Alfhera was back at it again. And that's because while England had been setting up new religious cults for their former king, King Hul of Gwyneth had been busy consolidating power. And now, in 983, he was ready to expand his power to the south, into the kingdoms of Brachiniog and Morganwig. And so, he turned to his ally, Elderman Alfhera of Mercia, for support. And I doubt Elf Hera hesitated for a second. There was loot up for grabs at Brekeniog and Morganwig. Furthermore, if Gwyneth could annex those kingdoms, then most of Mercia's southwestern edge would suddenly be bordering with a friendly ally. Elf Hera's lands would be mostly secured. And as a bonus, he'd have a powerful ally who is now in his debt. And let me tell you, those can come in handy. Also, remember that it wasn't all that long ago that Mercia... Not Wessex was the preeminent power among the Anglo Saxons, and on several occasions they had secured their power with the support of, wait for it, the Welsh. If I'm not being clear enough here, I think Alf Hera's involvement in Welsh politics, combined with his aggressive positioning in the English courts and the weakness of King Athelred looks very much like he had something bigger in mind than simply going to raid a Welsh monastery or two. I think the old Mercian gang was getting back together, and they were booking some studio time for their comeback album. So, in 983, Alf Hera raised his forces, and he joined the Welsh king on campaign. But he miscalculated. The campaign was a disaster. King Huw failed to annex either of the kingdoms, And as for Elderman Alfhera, well, we don't know the exact story, but he didn't survive, which meant the Regency Council was now down a man. His title, the Elderman of Mercia, was soon given to Alfhera's brother-in-law, a powerful Mercian magnate named Alfred Childe. Now, Alfred Childe was actually an old ally of another member of the Regency Council, Bishop Athelwald himself. The two of them had an impressive number of shared real estate deals. They also often appeared at councils together. And it's thought that Alfred Child was part of the faction that supported Athelred's claim to the throne during the succession crisis. Essentially, Alfred Child was one of them. And if Bishop Athelwald and Queen Elfthrith wanted to keep a hand on the tiller, he was probably their best choice. So, he was given the title of Elderman of Mercia. And the fact that that happened is likely a sign that Athelwald still had quite a lot of say in how succession matters were handled, and that he was trying to retain some degree of control over the young king. And soon after, Elderman Child of Mercia begins appearing rather prominently in the charters. But King Athelred was still getting older. He was approaching manhood, and one of the major figures of that council was still gone. We've already seen the king testing his powers. And right on cue, on that same year that Alfhera died, we see two other events take place that signal a major sea change in English politics. The first is that the queen mother, Elfthrith, disappears from the witness lists. Now she, like Athelwald and Alfhera, had enjoyed a great deal of prominence in those lists since Athelred first took the throne. But suddenly, she vanishes completely. And it's not because she died. Instead, it looks like she was literally removed from the king's court. Event number two involves that vacated eldermancy that was still sitting open, the one at Hampshire that was previously held by an extended member of the royal dynasty. It turned out that King Athelred had finally decided it was time to grant it, but it wasn't given to the heir of Athelmar, as tradition demanded. Instead, it went to a thane of an unknown lineage who was named Alfrich. Now, Alfridge was one of the most common names of the era. It's essentially the Chris of the 10th century. So you'd be forgiven if you thought he gave the territory to Athelwald's ally, Alfrich chilled. But that wasn't the case. This was a completely different Alfridge. He just kind of materializes out of the mists of history. We're not given his family background. In fact, we don't know anything else regarding his previous history. The best we have is that some scholars suspect that he might be the same Alfred who had first gained prominence during the reign of King Edward, when he'd been given some lands in Wiltshire. But that's just a guess. And even if that is the case, we're talking about a rather minor noble. Certainly not someone on the same level as Alfred Childe, who had a well-known family and personal history, not to mention gobs of money and lands. And yet, for some reason the king decided to break with protocol and likely enraged his own dynasty by giving what is essentially a total rando the wealthy and powerful eldermency of Hampshire. So you might be wondering what made Alfrich so special. Well, we don't know. But King Athelred really liked him. We're told that Alfrich was, quote, one of those whom the king trusted most, end quote. And it turned out, that what King Athelred was doing here wasn't a one-time deal. Of the eldermen who died or were stripped from office during the reign of Athelred, and there were many, all but one of those offices were given to other nobles of other, often lesser, dynasties. Sons stopped inheriting their father's offices during the reign of Athelred. And scholars suspect that what Athelred was doing here was more than simply dabbling in real estate. He was deliberately breaking the power structures underlying the key dynasties of his court. By refusing to appoint the sons of eldermen to these offices, which they have been holding as personal fiefdoms, Athelred now had a very valuable resource that he could hand out at will. And that meant that the eldermancy, under Athelred, would now be an office that you held at the king's pleasure. And it turns out that it was his pleasure to give those titles not to powerful dynasties, but to lesser noble families who, rather than feeling entitled to it, would be grateful. By doing this, he was ensuring that his eldermen would be indebted to him. Power was returning to the crown. All of a sudden, that crown was not filled by a council, but by a king. Athelred was about 15 or 16 years old at this point a full-grown man by the custom of the Anglo-Saxons. And the scaffolding of the old power block that had risen up with him when he was about 10 was finally coming down. Elfero was dead. The Queen Mother was removed from the council. And while Bishop Athelwald was still around, he was also in his 70s. And honestly, he wasn't looking too good these days. And into this power vacuum, a new circle appeared. At the center of it, was Elderman Alfrich of Hampshire. He was joined by Thane Athelsiga, who wasn't an elderman himself, but he appears to have been a very, very powerful Thane, who had been in the English court since the days of Edgar. There's also Wolfgar, the newly appointed Bishop of Ramsbury. And finally, you had Elderman Alfrich's own son, Alfgar, who had been appointed as a Reeve. There is a new sheriff in town. Literally. And it was this group who now had the king's ear. As for the old order, well, there was only one person close to the king left, dusty old Bishop Athelwald. And then, on August 1st of 984, Bishop Athelwald died. The path was now unobstructed, and this new group of counselors suddenly became very visible in the record. At about this same time, Swain Forkbeard, the son of King Harold Bluetooth, was leading a rebellion against his father, causing Denmark and Norway to explode into internal violence. And, all of a sudden, the Viking raids pretty much stopped. And that's pretty clearly the result of the instability and political mess that was taking place in Scandinavia. But I think I can guess how the king's new inner circle would have spun it. And that new circle, populated by Elfrich, Wolfgar, Athelsiga, and Elfgar, had been given an incredible windfall and they knew just how they wanted to use their newfound power. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, pretty much everything, and you can find links to all of those communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com.